Welcome to another episode of Off the Wire, uh, Faith That Works. Uh, my name is Matt Wireman, and I have the privilege of Mike Breen, who uh, I've gotten to know over the last year and a half, and who started a movement, as it were, in, uh, in Sheffield, England. Uh, he was a rector at St. Thomas's in Sheffield, and has recently moved to the United States. Uh, how, how long ago was that, Mike? Well, it's not that recent, actually, now, Matt. Um, we <laughs> moved here 15 years ago. 15. Yeah, but because um, we've been backwards and forwards a lot, I think okay. people sometimes forget that we've actually lived here that long. Okay, but, but you have retained the, the British accent. It's hard to get rid of it when you're as old as me. Yes, okay. And so, so I, I got to know Mike when he was here in Greenville, South Carolina, but now he has recently moved to Dayton, which I'm sure we'll get into here in a moment. And uh, Mike is really the, one of the leading uh, minds on discipleship and, and how to create a movement. In fact, he heads up 3DM, which I'd like for, for you to talk a little bit more about. But one of the things on, on Mike's bio that you'll see is that they, he was a, a senior rector at St. Thomas's in Sheffield. And uh, the sentence that reads, they did church a little differently than what is typical in the Anglican tradition. And so I'd like for you to start out just by explaining what exactly was different in what you were doing at St. Thomas's and how it became a movement as opposed to just a regular run-of-the-mill yeah. church, as it were. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Church of England um, is an interesting phenomenon. I mean, I think it was um, J.C. Ryle, the famous um, Bishop of, of, of Liverpool, who said that the Church of England is like Noah's Ark, big enough for all of the animals, both clean and unclean. And um, whether we're the clean or the unclean version depends on which way you look at it. But, um, but of course, we, we had services that followed the liturgical framework of the Church of England, but nobody had a prayer book in their hands. Uh, there were no robes in evidence. But we followed the, the Christian year. We followed the, the, the basic structure of, of Anglican worship. Uh, but we were very much focused on contextualizing the message of the gospel to an emerging generation. And so we were pioneering missional communities before anybody had really called them that. We used to call them clusters. Uh, that didn't kind of go over very well when we brought it to, the, to, to America. And so we, um, we began to think through what was the better way of describing it. And so missional communities became the the kind of the, the language of, uh, of those groups. And so they were, they were very much pioneered in, in that context, as were the vehicles for discipleship, which today are called huddles. So that's what we did in Sheffield. So were you um, looked down upon uh, in Sheffield because you didn't have a prayer book in hand or you didn't do things? And, and why? why, why uh... Well, it depends on what you mean. I mean, I, I don't know whether anybody would be so bold as to say that we were looked down upon, not publicly at any rate, but I think that that definitely was the case. I, I think that what happened was there was a grudging respect for what we did because we were, you know, by any measure, successful. Um, but because it was so out of the box or so kind of, so much of an outlier, I think that there was a general kind of disquiet based upon the fact that it was really not fully understood in terms of a missiological model. 
So you meant, you mentioned that it was called clusters in England and then missional communities. Can you kind of explain what, what that is to folks that may not be term, familiar with that? Term? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the idea of course is that, um, I mean, you know, most contemporary Christians would agree that the teaching in the new Testament on the priesthood of all believers is something that we have articulated, but not necessarily um, activated. And so one of the things that we wanted to do was to equip and, and encourage everybody within the congregation to be involved in mission. And so we began to organize the church around uh, missional focuses or missional foci across the city that were, that were developed by leaders that we trained up within our leadership pipeline who then could gather a community of people to see that particular vision fulfilled. So it would be everything from working amongst the addicted community to working amongst uh, legal professionals in the downtown area. It, it would depend on the sense of mission that that particular leader had. We would often give them airtime, as we called it, at the front of church during announcements. They would articulate their vision, articulate their sense of mission, and then people would gather to them after the service, talk to them about it, and then begin meeting so that mission became, if you like, the driving force of community. And um, what we saw was, I mean, well over 90% of the congregation were involved in, in those communities. And um, really, we saw mission advanced in just numerous ways across the city. When you, when you talk about these mission foci, I mean, what does that look like? Like somebody who's, I'm a stockbroker and I have a, a heart for stockbrokers or yeah. I have a heart Could for... Be. Orphan children. Yeah, I mean, it could be that, you know, a, a doctor really felt that they wanted to reach out to the medical community, or it could be a person in the medical community who really wanted to reach out to uh, people who were involved in the sex industry. So, you know, we had, we had a missional community that focused, with, uh, focused on the, the, the girls that were on a particular street in Sheffield, and... Um, their, their strategy and mission was to reach out in compassion towards those young women. And they were brought to the Lord, folded into community, and um, often uh, came to church on a Sunday as well with them. I mean, is that kind of rescue from that environment? I mean, it, was that really the impetus for starting this, this movement? I mean, as opposed no. to just doing church as normal, I mean, did, do you, did you see, and then even now, do you see in North America uh, this, this, loss of vision of, of mission and can you kind of speak to that just a little bit yeah i mean the, the problem about america is that we i mean i call my i say we because i've become an american in this last 12 months um we began the experiment on the understanding that the way to get rid of european feudalism was to make everybody an aristocrat and so so america basically started or was predicated on the idea that the freedoms and the responsibilities of aristocratic society in Europe were available to everybody here in America. And so everybody had the right to property, everybody had the right to vote. Every, so, you know, by and large, that was the model. Now, of course, you know, it's, it's right to say that obviously enslaved Africans were not included in that initial framework 
Uh, and of course, that's been part of our torrid history over the last two or three hundred years. But but the original the the original idea and the original consensus was that America was predicated on these on these principles, which of course were fully shared and expressed amongst arist aristocratic society, but were not shared with the feudal underlings, if you like. Well, what, um, what would something like that look like? Like an aristocratic type? Uh, well, it just, you know, I mean, you know, we-, we Go to seminary, are, get a degree, be the, be the professional, is that what you're thinking? Yeah, I mean, yeah, so, so what happened was, you know, in America we still have a thing called the castle law, which means that your property functions like your castle. And, um, and of course, that, that gives you a, a kind of a feel at almost the granular level of what was, what was anticipated about the American experiment, which has been vastly successful. But the church had a model of spiritual feudalism, where even if the pastors and priests were elected, they were expected to be not only those with the spiritual power, but the ones who, who offered spiritual provision. And so within church, there is an aristocratic caste who are expected to do most of the, if you like, the, the professional Christian things, but are given not only the responsibility, but the power to, to, as it were, execute those things. Which means that there's always a gap between what a person is expected to do who is a congregant and what a person is expected to do if they're a professional. And, um, and that gap I call spiritual feudalism. And that gap is something that is deeply entrenched in American spirituality, which means that the average person goes to church to, in quotes, get fed, mm -hmm. uh, which, of course, is a deeply kind of peasant vocabulary. I mean, you know, the, the, the reason that there was a revolution in France is because the peasants didn't have any food. And the reason they didn't have any food is because they didn't have any property. And the reason they didn't have any property is because they had no freedom of, of, of opportunity for this. Do you see what I mean? So, so now people go to church because they want to get fed or they want their children to get fed, mm -hmm. when obviously that was not the basis of the New Testament church or any of the New Testament writings. It's quite obvious that all of us have access to the bread of life, Jesus himself, and all of us have access to the word of God, that is obviously inspired by the Spirit of God. So, so, you know, we have to rethink that. And rethinking that in England was quite revolutionary. But frankly, I, I think it's quite as revolutionary here. Yeah, some, some people may say, yeah, I, I agree that there's a priesthood of all believers. I, I see this in Peter. And, and, and yet, um, you know, you don't want everything running amok. You want to make sure that you've got people who have gone through training that have, that have been able to say they can explain the Trinity or, you know, the hypostatic union of Jesus or something like that. So, so how do you get around uh, somebody or not even get around, but respond to somebody who's like, Hey, all you're doing is, yeah, I, you, that's really nice that you're leveling the playing field and, and then you're putting the onus on just your, your Christians period, not a spe specialized type of Christian. So how do you respond to like, Hey, folk, folks are going to mess this stuff up because they're going to start, you know, uh, teaching heresies. Sure. And of course, when America, uh, started the revolutionary war back in England, that's what was said in parliament and in the Royal court, they said, well, just wait a while. I mean, peasants can't run a country. I mean, you can't, ex you can't expect people who are not born to power 
to be able to do that. So how could it possibly ever happen? And of course, you know, thereby hangs a tail. I mean, look at what's happened. So sure, I understand that. And, um, and I understand the nature of privilege, that privilege generally develops a, a language and a culture that keeps other people out of that culture unless they share the same terms of reference and are prepared to, if you like, pay the dues that give them that privilege. I, I don't think anywhere in the New Testament anybody was expected to, um, to express the hypostatic union <laughs> because it wasn't for another 300 years that Nicaea uh, actually established what that was. Mm. And certainly uh, we didn't have Tertullian around to coin the phrase Trinity. But what you did have is a testimony to the triune God. And, and of course, that's, that's, a, that's a different thing altogether. And of course, I'm, you know, I'm a theologian, so it's not like I'm saying I don't think theology is important. I just think that what we need to do is ask ourselves, is what we're doing giving the greatest opportunity to the greatest number of people to have a kind of a sense of engagement in what it is that we're doing. So how, how would you recommend that churches begin to even train people in discipling others? Because it sounds like you're not just content with, okay, we want people to know who Jesus is, but we want them to also be able to train other people. And there being a, a oh. progeny, as it were. So how, how would you recommend and how do you train? Obviously, you've written extensively about this. Um, sure building a discipleship culture and, and, and those kind of things. So how would you on a, on a 10,000 foot view say, okay, somebody says yes, but I can't find, you know, a lot of times you hear pastors say, I can't find leaders in my church or I can't find, you know, anybody. To, so where, where would you even start if you're looking around the landscape of your church and you're like, uh, I don't really know if I yeah. want that person replicating. Yeah. Himself. yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we've all got personal preferences, but, but, I, and I'm not suggesting, you know, that we suddenly just become an anarchic society. What I'm saying is that there is a reason why the last words of Jesus recorded in the Gospels, particularly the Synoptic Gospels, refer to the project of discipleship. And uh, the reason for that, it seems to me, is that that is precisely what Jesus had in mind as he was preparing to be, be ascended into heaven. And so, and so, you know, when you say look at Matthew 28, most people look at the kind of the, 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 the triune baptismal formula or they look at going, the idea of going. But the fascinating thing for me is that there's this kind of almost hidden verse in the Great Commission, verse 20, that says, teaching them to do everything I taught you to do. Now, I think that that is perhaps the most challenging verse, uh, certainly in Matthew's gospel, and maybe in all of the gospels, because what Jesus is expecting is that the 12 that he has trained to do a whole number of things, the, his expectation of them is that their new disciples will learn to do everything that they've been taught to do. Now, if that's the case, that means that everyone should be able to pray for the sick. Everyone should know how to deal with a demon. And everyone should know how to baptize a new believer. I mean, you know, it's, it, it's the kind of thing that 
a lot of pastors don't feel like they're equipped to do. Mm. And, um, and I think that what we have to do is to get back to the studs, if you like. We need to get back to brass tacks and say, okay, so now what is it that we're actually discipling and training people to do? It's great to teach them how to think. Do we actually have orthopraxy at the same level of it as our orthodoxy? Because it's orthopraxy that Jesus is talking about mm-hmm. in verse 20. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, total sense. So what are some of those uh, studs in the framework, as it were, for that, that you would focus on? You, you mentioned being able to baptize, but even to get to that point where somebody says, yeah, this person can be, what is underneath the drywall, so to speak? Well, I mean, simply put, and this, um, this of course, reflects centuries of monastic thinking, theological reflection, and is enshrined in a whole number of, of documents down through the centuries. But I think simply put, you would say imitation of Christ means an imitation of, in terms of orthopraxy, means an imitation of the way that he conducted himself in relation to the Father, mm-hmm. which I call the upward dimension. Mm-hmm in relation to his given community, which, of course, becomes ecclesia, but is barely mentioned in the Gospels. As you know, it's only mentioned twice in Matthew. But, but is the given community, the covenant community. So what, what's his relationship to the covenant community? And then what's his relationship to the world? So, so the three dimensions of up, the dimension of in towards the covenant community, and the dimension of out toward the world, it sounds simple. It most certainly isn't simplistic. It's simple in the sense of resolving complexity. The way to resolve complexity, obviously, is to embrace simplicity without it becoming simplistic. And so I would say, I'd say that those, those elements are the elements of orthopraxy. So, so what you're saying is a fully formed disciple is not is not a linear process as much as it is it, it, it when someone says i want to be a christian automatically they are they have this three-dimensional piece to what they're what they're doing so there's not like okay you need to have a six-month uh catechesis class and then we'll we'll release you out into the world to go and evangelize so can you can you tease out that relationship of this this inward because a lot of times there is a uh, a bifurcation between fellowship and community within the people of God and then you go out to the nations and and then you bring them in and then you go out and in and out and can you kind of speak to that as as it relates to a healthy disciple well clearly what we tended to do in the west and you know we have to kind of tackle this at an intellectual level we have been at least as influenced by the Enlightenment as we have by the Reformation. And so, and so the idea of information as the primary method of formation is something that we have, I mean, fully embraced and put all of our chips into that basket. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know mm-hmm. that, you know, every theological college knows that. Mm-hmm. And, and quite obviously, it doesn't take any level of investigation to recognize that clearly Jesus is operating with 
really great information, but also a model of imitation that, that mimesis the, the, you know, neuroscientists and, and a whole bunch of social scientists would understand the idea of mimesis, the Greek word for imitation, that, that mimesis is absolutely central to the way a person is formed. Now, what, what I would like to, to, to get people to understand is, you know, just from a scientific point of view, the way in which human beings become who they are is more about mimesis than about anything else. Mm. So, you know, they've, they've, they've observed children who are 45 minutes old imitating the facial movements of their parents. Mm. Now, you know, human beings are formed through information and imitation. Mm. So it's impossible it's impossible to imagine a disciple being fully formed without a model of imitation. And so I call them mimetic exemplars. I think that a pastor, a leader, a, a, a spiritual guide needs to function as a mimetic exemplar. Hmm. Now, if that's the case, then you start to say, okay, so do you have a, a life that anybody else wants? <laughs> and, you know, then you say, well, you know, I've been running this feudal system for so long. That means that my life is completely different to everybody else's life. I, I don't have a life that is accessible to the average person. Because so, they're full-time vocational ministers and they're just in this encased place. Is that why? There's a, there's a... Exactly. So then how do you make the translation? So, yeah. so there's, there's several questions that need, to be, that need to be thought through there. But here's the thing. I mean, I've, I don't know how many, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pastors I've worked with on this. Many of them get to this point of saying, I mean, I don't, I don't know whether anybody would want my life. I'm not sure I want it. Mm-hmm. And so, and so the, the question then is not whether I'm a perfect example, but whether I'm a living example. In other words, the struggles, the wrestling, the, 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 the kind of engagement with the Lord, as you pray, as you read the scriptures, as you worship, as you engage and participate in the, in the sacraments. All of those things are things that you've got to get beyond the intuitive level into an intentional expression so that other people can begin to see what it is that you're doing, what, what, understand what it is that you're doing. Can, can you, um, what, what, how do you mean the difference between an intuitive and an intentional level? Well, you know, m- most of us are functioning at an intuitive level all the time, mostly because you know, the way that we learn things is to go from a kind of unconscious incompetence to an unconscious competence. I mean, this is Maslow, isn't it? So, so you've got this, you don't know what you don't know. So you start out as a pastor and, you know, you kind of drop bricks everywhere and everybody's upset with you. And then you finally kind of get it together and you go through this, this process of conscious incompetence through to conscious competence through to unconscious competence. And mostly, you're dealing with leaders who have a level of unconscious competence in what it is that they're doing. So they're not thinking about the fact that, you know, I need to pray every day. They're not thinking about the fact that they need to be gracious towards their wife and their children. They're not thinking about the fact that they need to be encouraging towards their children and not kind of overbearing. But they, they've engaged with those things in the scriptures and they've thought about those things as a disciple. But now what they've got to do is they've got to kind of dig deep in their own heart and say, okay, 
what is it that I'm doing intuitively mm. that I now have to externalize so that I can do it intentionally so that other people can begin to see what it is that I'm doing and I can help them with it. Mm. And, um, and that's, that's the key, really. The, the key is finding ways, not just doing the information, because we're very good at that. I mean, if you measured us against any other age and probably any other part of the church in the world right now, the Western church is brilliant at information exchange. It's whether we're any good at the, informa- at the imitation thing. And, mm. and that's the key, really. Wow, yeah. I think you, know, you just kind of stepped on some toes because... You <laughs> You definitely see pastors who can preach more or less, who can give answers to people in counseling situations, who can talk about all the apologetics issues in the culture, but they denigrate their wives. Mm -hmm. They treat their children as, you know, animals, uh, or I don't mean to be too, be, be too pejorative, but, but, you know, not, not treating them with like, there, there's not an imitative type quality to their lives. Why in the world do you think it does stem back to this enlightenment, spiritual feudalism, they're professionals. So they'll flip a switch and they can say, okay, I'm on right now. Cause I, I've witnessed pastors who you're having lunch with them. And then somebody from their congregation walks in and something happens and they turn on pastor mode and they're like, oh, how are you? Like they actually care. And then they go back to talking about trivial matters at, at lunch. Is that That's really the problem? Thing. That bifurcation, that, that kind of separation is something that, I mean, if you, read the, if you read the synoptics and you can't pick up that Jesus is not excited about hypocrisy, then you're <laughs> probably not reading in a language that's your first language. I mean, are you kidding me? Yeah. So that whole mask wearing thing, which of course is the word that's used in the Greek for a hypocrite, that mask wearing, yeah. that's totally no go for Jesus. And the reason is because you can't imitate that. <laughs> well, you can, but it doesn't get you anywhere. Yeah. 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 Wow. So, so how, I mean, it just really gets back to this simple uh, piece of, looking at observing Jesus's way of life and then going from the unconscious incompetence of what you're talking about, that even as pastors who are unconscious, like you all don't even know that you have a pride problem. And it takes time for people to be around Jesus long enough to say, I have a pride problem. So you become consciously incompetent, right? So, and and this is you, um, And, and you know what, working that out in front of a congregation, will not only help them, but they'll give you their hearts. Because this is what I've noticed. If you open your heart in terms of the things that you're wrestling with to the people that you're serving, those people will give you their hearts. And so the necessary dynamic for creating a discipling culture is a level of vulnerability and brokenness in the Mm. leaders. Would one of the ways to get to to help somebody, so say somebody's listening to this podcast and like, well, I I don't really have a pride problem. Um, How would you help help someone discern that perhaps they do or, you know, to be able to see what what are some ways to get to shining a light on the unconscious incompetence that you're talking about? Yeah. And that's a brilliant question. I I don't think anybody's ever asked me that question before, Matt. Um, I think the simplest answer that I can come up with is this. 
in our, in our daily prayers and in our daily reading and in our daily engagement with the Lord, we will encounter kairos moments. This, uh, this word that Jesus, or that Jesus is reported as using, obviously he's speaking in Aramaic, but the record is in Greek. The Greek word for kairos is this kind of event. There's this moment. And um, kairos, as opposed to chronos, which is the kind of sequential time, this kairos moment where you're suddenly arrested and you're, you're, you're struck by something. That, that right there, you know, you're in the midst of something and you come away and you think, what was going on there? I completely missed that. What, why, would, why did I miss that? Yeah. And you go back and, you know, if you read uh, Building a Discipling Culture, I give you a tool, a kind of learning process that helps you engage with that, that Kairos. But if you go back and reflect on that and you say something like this, you say, you know, I think probably the reason I didn't pick up what was going on there was that I was more interested Mm. In promoting my agenda mm. than responding to what it was that this other person was struggling with. Yeah. That is a definition of pride. Mm. Because basically you put yourself before another. Yeah. I mean, that is it, isn't it? You see what I mean? Yeah. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm just using pride because you brought that up. But, yeah. but yeah. you know, it could be anything. Yeah. It, it could be... It could be a desire to please other people. It could be that you're, you live in a, a, a desperate kind of need to, to, to find approval. It could be all kinds of things. It could be, it could be that you know, you've got this little tweak in you that, that establishes this need for a particular appetite to be met. Mm. I don't know. It really, it really sounds like it stems from a lack just quite simply of self-awareness of being able to say, okay, what is yeah. my history? Yeah. Because I think one of the exercises that you do to, to, to discern these Kairos moments is to, is to look in, in from your birth to present day and say, what are the low points of my life? What are the yeah. high points of my life? Right. Where was God in both of the valleys and the peaks? And then that helps to get you to a point of self-awareness because really the person who is, proud, like you said, is, is busy looking out and looking at other specks in people's eyes and not looking at their own log. So they haven't yeah. spent a lot of time reflecting on themselves. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. That's helpful. And, and so do you think um, that really is, I mean, as you look at your body of work and, and what, you're, what you're doing now, um, do you really see that that spiritual feudalism is one of the greatest challenges in the Western church? Or is there something else that you would identify as, as the greatest challenges we're trying to, to, yeah. I mean, maybe, you know, I, 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 I maybe I'm a bit myopic in relation to spiritual feudalism because, you know, I'm a working class boy from a class society, you know, so I've lived with the nature of class systems all my life. So maybe I'm kind of living out some of my own baggage. But, um, but you know, when I look at the church, it is shocking mm. how prevalent the idea of there being a professional mm. who is taking care of the spiritual provision of these people. Mm. The, the idea of that is just, it's amazing to me. Mm. What, why, mean, why, why is that amazing? Like, well, I mean, you know, they, just to tease out the obvious. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't get a sense of Jesus saying, "I'm the bread of life. Go to a baker <laughs> yeah. 
and then you'll be able to get the get the nourishment. I don't mm. I don't get that. I, there seems to be an immediate and direct relationship that is offered to every disciple. Mm. Now, is that honestly what we're promoting and developing on a weekend at a local church? Mm. I don't know. Huh. See what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that really flips a lot of things upside down for folks. Sure. I mean, you know, I'm the water of life. There's a bottler who's got some great bottles available for you. Just go, go and get one of his bottles. Or I'm the, I'm the water of life. There's a guy over there with a well. So if you bring your bucket, you may be able to – I mean, it's just bonkers. I mean, we, wouldn't, we never mm. position the words of Jesus in that way. Mm-hmm. And yet, I mean, I've even heard people say, well, you know, I've, I've heard that there's this great revival, this great renewal going on. I'm going to take my bucket with me. And I just think it's way better having a well than a bucket. I mean, what are you talking about? <laughs> Have your own well. But we don't teach people how to dig those. Huh. Well, and, and it seems like a lot of that rationale is, again, motivated by a fear that if, if I give you freedom to have quote-unquote, direct access to Jesus, which I, I, I de- idealistically I would agree with, but you're going you're gonna to botch it up or you're going to have some, some sediment in there and yeah. there's just a fear that you're not going to get the pristine water that I, with my education, is that really what, what's behind it? It's so much better water because, you know, you, you treat your wife terribly and your kids are all unsaved and they're never going to go to church yeah. again. You know, all of that. But um, So we leave that on one side. But the... But the, the, the point is not simply that we're providing opportunity for everybody to access the, the spiritual nourishment, the spiritual mm-hmm. nutrition that is available in Jesus, but we're undercutting this culture of privilege mm-hmm. that we give to pastors and professionals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's quite creepy, you know, how, yeah. how privileged <laughs> we are. And... You know, once you get to a certain position within church, nobody's checking on your schedule. Mm. Nobody's checking on your schedule. Mm. So what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> that really is the question. What are you spending your time doing? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So, so being self-reflective, spending time really asking the hard questions of who am I and why am I the way I am, and then... <laughs> Quite honestly, instead of just finding the next systematic theology book to walk through with with a bunch of guys, which, which can be helpful, uh, yeah, but but yeah. even more so, being able to say, I'm going to get one or three folks to just go to the grocery store with me, see how I interact with the grocery store clerk. I'm going to then take them to the coffee shop, and and we're going to interact with human beings. Yeah, I mean that really is. Uh, would those be some, some initial steps? That would be a great way to start. That would be a great way to start. I mean, I think that you probably need time to reflect on all of that. Yeah. I kind of call that a huddle. But, mm-hmm. um, but having that experience changes the way that we function as clergy and as pastors. Mm-hmm. And um, it changes the, the nature of the relationship. Now, you know, people will still think that you're a spiritual rock star because now mm-hmm. you're showing them how to pray. And so you're still going to have to deal with that whole dynamic that people will give you undue credit and all of that kind of thing. So, you know, we'll need to get our theology of grace worked out. But that, that dynamic, I think, is something that we need to work on. 
And, and the reason I would say we need to work on it is that there is a reason why the Great Commission comes at the end of the story. Hmm. It hmm. must have a very, very significant, if not ultimate significance, in the mind and heart of Jesus. Hmm. That's great. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time. So I, I wanted to just let folks know how, if they wanted to get some more Mike Breen and some more yeah. of this, where, where could they find you? Uh, how could they yeah. follow what you're Michael, doing? Yeah, michaeljamesbreen.com. Mm-hmm. You'd be able to get all of my audio and physical products there. And um, there's all kinds of stuff that's free. And, you know, I hope that they enjoy that. Yeah, but there's there's plenty that that's that's purchasable as well, right? And it's worth it. So I mean, you went to uh, if you went to 3DM Publishing. Okay. There's quite a lot of books there as well. The the number three, right? 3D. Yeah, you you, you write it as a a number three, a letter D, a letter M, and then publishing. And and so if somebody's hearing this and they're like, "Wow, this is intriguing. I would love to learn more about." Uh, discipleship and how I could even start. I mean, you would have them start with creating a discipleship culture, or where, where yeah, would you even I, go? Yeah, depending on depending on the kind of position they're in. I mean, you know, if they're in a large church, then a book like Leading Kingdom Movements might be something that's helpful for them. Okay. Uh, because you know, one of the big questions is, can we turn the ministry that we're leading into a movement? Mm. Um, but if you're just looking at discipleship, then building a discipling culture would be mm-hmm. really helpful. Mm-hmm. And then you and your wife, Sally, also wrote a book, right, together? Yeah, she's a much better writer than me. It's, it's <laughs> a good thing, isn't it? Um, she, uh, I, you know, I get to write all these books, and she gets all the credit for the one book she writes, <laughs> which, you know, it's fantastic. But yeah. uh, it's called Family on Mission. And in a way, that came out of our reflection on the kind of clergy home, mm. the pastoral home. Yeah. And um, that might be helpful, too. Yeah, to be able to get to those self-reflective type questions on the molecular level of, am I really, am I really acting as a disciple? That would be somebody who we'd want to imitate. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Great. Well, let me uh, let me close this in prayer and thank you for your time. Thank you, Matt. Heavenly Father, thank you for Mike and for the ministry that you have given to him. Thank you for his vision to help uh, raise up uh, disciples who also disciple and who will continually seek out uh, opportunities to engage with you at such a level that, that their lives are reflective of the life of Jesus. Father, we pray for Mike and for his ministry with 3DM, and we pray that you would bless him and strengthen him in such a way that you would help him to see even more disciples uh, created, and even more movements created from all of his labors. Thank you for this time that we've had together, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Wonderful. Thanks, Matt. Great. Thank you.